Well, my name is Tony Diekman. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, Dan said probably earlier this is our third week, and we're looking at the book of Acts and what it means to be the church. And what a great story to talk about how God does amazing things through us. Right? And today we're looking at a story that there's a miracle. Not just something that, that's highly unlikely, but something that just defies logic. Something that we can't understand. Something that requires divine intervention. And you ask people today, do you believe in miracles? And majority of Americans still believe in miracles, but there's a growing crowd of people that dismiss them and say that's superstition. God doesn't raise people from the dead, and he doesn't heal the sick. And when you ask skeptics why is it they don't believe in miracles today, they oftentimes tell you, well, miracles break the laws of nature. And if you break the laws of nature, then it's just not possible. You can't break the laws of nature. And so my question today is, do miracles break the laws of nature? What are the laws of nature? Well, simply put, the laws of nature are our descriptions of what we see that normally happens. It's our observations of how we have observed the universe. But again, the question is, do miracles break those laws? Well, to help us understand that, I'd like to use an observation, an illustration as taught by the mathematician and Christian apologist John Lennox. And he does this by using the simple laws of, math, of mathematics and, and specifically of arithmetic. One plus one equals two. He says, if I have $100 and I take it out of this pocket and I take another $100 out of this pocket and I put it together, stick it in my dresser drawer and wake up tomorrow morning and open the drawer and there's $50 there. Am I to conclude that the laws of arithmetic have been broken? Or possibly it's the laws of the United States? I think I would conclude it's the laws of the United States that have been broken. And what this simple illustration teaches us is that the law in a scientific sense is different than the law in a legal sense, in the laws of a nation. But what helps me understand, how is it that I can conclude that it's the laws of the United States that have been broken? It's because I know the laws of arithmetic. Right? If I didn't know the laws of arithmetic, I would think, well, one and one was two yesterday, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's two today. But since I know the laws of arithmetic, I know somebody's reached their hand in and taken my money. But the other thing that we learn is, the laws in and of themselves can't keep the person from reaching their hand in, now can they? And it's the same with miracles. God has created this universe, and we have described it as encoded by laws. But God is not a prisoner of those laws. God can reach a divine hand in and add a new event. We do not believe that miracles violate the laws of nature. Because God reaches in with his mighty power, his energy, and performs what we call miracles. God does miracles. We believe in miracles because we believe in God. And today, as we turn to our text in Acts chapter 3, we see God performing yet another miracle. Before we get there, I would ask if you would bow your heads and pray with me as we begin. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. The God who created everything from nothing, who put everything into motion, 
who heals the sick, raises the dead, and creates life where there was none. Father, we give you thanks for the new lives that we have in your son Jesus, for the miracle of your son, and for the miracle of faith that you have given us. And it's by that faith that we pray to you this morning. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be truly acceptable in your sight. Our God is still at work today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 3. I'm going to be using the ESV version as we go through. I'm not going to have all the scripture on the, on the screen, so open your phones, open your tablets, open your eyes. So here we go. The beginning of the story, we see that Peter and John are going up to the temple. And we get this impression that they're going up there, and this is something that they do every day. We saw in chapter 2 that they went up there in the morning at 9 o'clock in the third hour. This is called the ninth hour, which is 3 in the afternoon. The Jewish day starts at 6 a.m., 9 hours, 3 in the afternoon. So we get the idea that Peter and John make it a regular habit of going to the temple in the morning and in the afternoon. I want you to remember that detail. We're going to come back to that later. We also see that there's this lame man who has been lame from birth. He hasn't been able to walk since the time he was born. And every day, it says, that he's carried to the temple and laid at the steps of the gate called Beautiful. I want you to remember that idea about the, blind man, or about the lame man. He's carried there every day and laid at the steps of the gate Beautiful. What's significant about that? Well, the historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, describes this great gate as the grandest and the gl most glorious gate there in, in Jerusalem. It's the largest, it's the widest, and it's the most expensive because it's overlaid with Corinthian brass. And it's more beautiful, they say, than the, than the gates that were laid with silver and gold. And this gate would have been the gate where most people entered. So he's being placed in the opportune place, the place where he's going to encounter the most people every day. He has an opportunity to be cared for by the people. And as he's being laid down, we see almost before he's laid down, he's asking people for alms, for money, for, for material needs. He holds out his hand, and Peter and John come up to him. And they bend down, and he says, they both say to this man, look at us. And it says he looks at them expecting to receive alms. Now, I don't know if the same thing is true in Jesus' day, but today, if you're walking down the street and you see a beggar, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? What's the first thing you, you try to avoid? Eye contact, right? Eye contact. Because if I make eye contact, I might have to stop and I might feel something and I might do something that I don't want to do. But here, I love this picture of Peter and John coming down to his level and saying, look at us. And here they do this gracious thing of acknowledging his existence. And he turns to them and he says, this. And Peter says to him, I don't have money. Gold and silver I do not have. But what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And it says he reaches down, grabs the man by his right hand, lifts him up, and immediately his strength is restored and he leaps to his feet. And he jumps around and he's walking around and he's praising God. What do you think happens? Right? People are watching. Now stop for a second. We see this and we don't even think sometimes what happened. He's lame from birth. He's never learned how to walk. 
he probably has no muscles in his legs whatsoever because they've never been used to walk. And in an instant, he's leaping around the court. He's learned how to walk, and he's walking, and he's jumping. Defying logic and reason. A miracle. And as a result, it catches everybody's eye. Imagine leaving here today and walking out into the parking lot and seeing somebody leaping around the parking lot that you saw coming here for years in a wheelchair. Would you walk out and say, hey, Betty, and walk on? Probably not, right? You would run, and everybody that saw it would run and go, wait a minute, that's Betty. She was in a wheelchair. What's she doing jumping around? And that's exactly what happens here. It says people rushed over to Peter and John to see what was going on. And as Peter saw everybody rushing, I think he got an idea why he was there that day. Because it says, as he saw them coming over, he addressed the people. It's as though God is compelling Peter to preach. And Peter catches the hint. And he says, men of Israel, why do you look at us? Why do you look at me and John as though we healed this man by our power, by our good works, by our righteousness? We didn't do this. But I'll tell you who did was Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man that you killed, the man that you handed over to Pilate, the man that you traded in for a murderer. That's the man you thought was dead. He's now alive. It's by the power of his name that this man has been healed. By faith in his name, this man walks and runs and jumps and praises God. He said, you turned him over to be killed. Because you didn't believe in him, that he was the Messiah. You had him whipped and beaten and pierced, just like the prophets said he would be. Peter is preaching the gospel. And he starts with the prophets, and he goes back to Moses. And Moses said that they would raise up a prophet just like Moses, and he would come, and you should listen to him, and if you don't, you have trouble. But you didn't listen to him. You, in your ignorance, you killed him. You didn't see the signs. You didn't believe the miracles. And you killed him. But you were ignorant. But then he goes on to say, so repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, have proclaimed these days, these days that we walk in right now. They foretold these days. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter saying to them, saying, you killed the Messiah. That's exactly what the prophet said. That's exactly God's plan, is that you would kill the Messiah, that you would reject him. But guess what? Even though you killed the Messiah, even though you killed God's own son, God is still calling you. God is still calling you unto himself to heal you, to heal your soul, to reconcile you to himself. Yes, you're sinners, you're murderers, you're the worst of people, but God loves you anyway. And he showed that by sending his son, 
And he demonstrated by that, that through the miracles that he performed and the miracles now that his followers are performing with his power. Because God loves you. And we see what the place of miracle is in this story. As we see Jesus healing, as we see his disciples healing, we understand that the miracle is a miraculous thing. The man is healed. But the miracle in itself is not the end. It's not the goal. The miracle serves the gospel. It's for the sake of the gospel that the miracle was performed. It was to draw people to Peter so Peter could preach. We see that in Mark. Mark says that the disciples went everywhere while Jesus was still with them and preached, and the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said with miraculous signs. The miracles confirm the power of Jesus, confirm the power of God, confirm the gospel. Miracles serve the gospel, and God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. It's God who chooses to heal, and God chooses to heal this man that day, and he continues to heal throughout the New Testament. We see it over and over again. This is the first miracle that the disciples perform after Jesus was risen, after he had ascended back into heaven. But it wasn't the last because they continued to heal, raise the dead, heal the sick. But the question is, does God still do that today? Because a lot of people argue that that kind of healing through God's people ended with the apostles. That he no longer shares that gift with his people. But does he? Does he not do that anymore today? I believe God still does miracles today. Why? Because the gospel is still being preached today. In fact, some of you, I've seen your heads nod, you know that miracles happen. Maybe you have witnessed those yourself. You know, there's a population of people in this country and around the world that have seen miracles and see miracles probably more often than you or I, unless you're part of this population. And that's doctors. They see things all the time that defy logic, that defy what they learned in textbooks, that they don't understand, they can't explain. And there's a doctor here in Chicago, his name is Scott Kolbaba, and he started hearing these stories from his friends. And he was talking to them and asking them to share these stories. He'd like to share them with us. And they were really resistant. They didn't want to share them because they knew what people would think. Especially, you're, you're kind of a scientific guy. What do, what do you believe in miracles for? And so that's why he titled it, you know, these things that they share that they don't want to share with their patients and certainly with you. They don't want to share with anyone. But he convinced them to share their stories. And it's one of those stories that I would like to share with you this morning. It's in chapter 22, and it's entitled Praying for a Miracle. It's about a young woman, Barb. And she is 15 years old, living in this area. And she's starting to have these tremors in her hand and fumbling with her feet and she's falling down and she's clumsy and they go to the doctor and they're doing tests on her and they're, they're coming up to the conclusion that they think it might be multiple sclerosis. But that's too young for multiple sclerosis and they didn't really have the test to confirm that. Well, later, a couple years later, they had some tests and so they started running them again as her condition continued to worsen. 
and they confirmed the diagnosis of progressive multiple sclerosis, for which they could do nothing. And so for the next 10 plus years, her condition continued to deteriorate. She lost use of her hands and feet, and they trembled so much she couldn't walk, and she lost use of her lungs, and she had to have oxygen all the time because she couldn't breathe on her own very well, and she had to have a permanent catheter put in her bladder, and she had to have a colostomy bag on her side, and she lost use of her eyes. She became legally blind, and her, conti- her condition continued to deteriorate. And at one point, she says that she lost faith if it weren't for her pastor who encouraged her. And she says as she matured, she learned that God was what God was up to, that God was a good God. But it kept going downhill. People kept praying and praying and praying for her to be healed, but yet her condition continued to worsen. In fact, the story was shared on the local radio station, WMBI. And as a result of that, thousands of people were praying for her and sending her cards and letters and sharing that news that they were praying for her. But she made the decision, because nothing was working, and she was reaching her end of life, that she would enter hospice. And her doctor agreed, and her family agreed. And so she signed the DNR and was headed into hospice. Well, on June 7, 1981, her sister's birthday, she wanted to be there. She was too weak to get out of bed, but they were having it there, and her aunt was there reading cards and letters that had been sent in from the radio station. And from there, I'd like to read to you the story as it continues in the chapter. In the early afternoon, two girlfriends came to visit after church. Barb became weary with all the attention and was quiet with the girls made small talk. While there was a, full, well, there was a lull in the conversation, a man's voice spoke from behind Barb. But there was no man in the room. The words were clear and articulate and spoken with great authority but also with great compassion. The voice said, my child, get up and walk. Barb turned around. No one was standing there. But she knew immediately who was speaking. I don't know what you're going to think about this, she said, but God just told me to get up and walk. Her friend suddenly became very quiet. I know, he really did, Barb insisted. Run and get my family. I want them to be here with me. Her friends, recognizing the urgency in her voice, bounded to the doorway to yell to her family, come quick, come quick. Barb felt compelled to do immediately what she had was divinely instructed, so she literally jumped out of bed and removed her oxygen. She was standing on legs that had not supported her for years. Her vision was back, and she had no longer short of breath, even without her oxygen. Her contractions were gone, and she could move her feet and hands freely. As she walked out of the room, she was first met by her mother, who immediately dropped to her knees and felt Barb's calves. You have muscles again, she claimed. Her father came running in next and hugged Barb and whisked her off for a waltz around the family room. A distressed occupational therapist tried to restart her oxygen, but after realizing what was happening, she simply said, This contradicts everything I ever learned in school. Monday, she went to the doctor, and he said, I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought I was seeing an apparition. She was completely healed. 
took her off all medication, a week later took her off the ventilator that was in her neck. Gone. And this is how he concludes the chapter. I've never witnessed anything like this before or since, and considered it a rare privilege to observe the hand of God performing a true miracle. Barb has gone on to live a normal life in every way. She subsequently married a minister and feels her calling in life is to serve others, which is what she did after her life was miraculously preserved by her creator. Praise God. God still does miracles today. God still does miracles today because the gospel is still being preached because people are yet to believe. And he gives us the opportunity to preach the gospel wherever miracles are performed. But I know there's a question because I hear it often. He healed her, but why didn't he heal my wife? Why didn't he heal my son? Why didn't he heal my best friend? And the answer is, we don't know. We honestly don't know. We don't know exactly why God healed this woman and healed others, but did not heal our loved ones. And so we need to be reminded that we need to stay out of two ditches, as Dan usually says. We need to stay out of this ditch over here and feel compelled to give answers that we don't have answers to. We don't have the answers. We don't know exactly why, but that doesn't keep some from saying, well, maybe this is why he's doing it, and they try to articulate some kind of reasoning about how this will turn out for the best. We don't know what God is up to. But we need to say out of the other ditch that says, we have no idea. We have no idea. There can't be any good in that. We'll never know. That's not true either. The good news is that someday we will know exactly why. We'll get to experience that person healed completely. And they'll get to witness us healed completely someday. But in the meantime, we need to stay in between those two things. But we're not without hope. We may be without specific answers, but we're not without hope. Because we know God's character. We see it over and over again testified to in the Scriptures. And we see it talked about by, by Paul. Paul says that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In all things. When he heals and when he doesn't. God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we know that in all things, God works for good. When he heals and when he doesn't. The miracle is not the end. The gospel is. We know that the gospel is still being preached. We know that God still does miracles. And that he does it for our good. And when he doesn't heal, it's for our good as well. That we can trust. Let's turn back to the story. A couple of things I ask you to remember. Peter and John went to the temple daily. Right? Daily. We see they went there all the time. It was their practice for years. We also see that this man was daily carried to the temple, daily laid on the steps by his family. And we see that he's lame from birth, a birth which was over 40 years ago, because he, we learned in chapter 4 that he was over 40 years old. So he'd been coming there quite a while. 
And so as I'm studying the text, I'm looking at this going, wait a minute, it dawns on me. It doesn't tell us, but I think it's reasonable to, to conclude that Peter and John probably saw him there before. Right? I mean, he'd been coming for years. They'd been coming for years. Chances are they had seen him before. And so a question came to my mind. Why didn't they heal him sooner? Why wait till this day? And then I started thinking, wait a minute. Jesus went to the temple. Jesus himself walked on this earth, and he went to the temple regularly because that's what he taught his disciples to do. And it makes sense that Jesus would have seen this man while Jesus was on the earth. Same question. So why didn't Jesus heal him? I think we see the answer in the same text. I think we can conclude with reasonable certainty the answer to that question. We see in verse 4 of chapter 4 that as a result of Peter preaching, their number swelled to 5,000 that day. Thousands came to faith in Jesus Christ that day. I think you could say had they healed him sooner, one man's physically healed. Waiting for this day, thousands received the ultimate healing. That's the mission God is about. It's about calling all men unto himself. And he uses miracles to do so, and he uses us to do that. But it wasn't the miracle that caused them to believe. You see in the text, they heard the word. It was the gospel. It is the power of salvation from God for all who believe. That was God's end goal that day. That thousands would come to faith. That is still his goal today. Is that thousands and millions would come to believe in Jesus Christ and receive the true healing, the ultimate healing, only found in the name of Jesus. So what do we do with this? Well, I recognize that maybe some of you are here this morning, and maybe you came not under the power of your own volition. But maybe you were literally carried here by a friend or a family member. Or maybe you would describe it as being drugged here. I want you to know that God is calling you here. God is calling you here to share the good news that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, is the Lord, is King. And he offers you healing. It's time you believe. And he calls all of us to continue to pray for miracles, to continue to pray for healing, trusting in his timing, trusting in his knowledge, trusting in his goodness, knowing that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And in the meantime, we are to continue to cast all of our cares and our concerns upon him. No matter how big, no matter how small, we're called to cast all of our cares and concerns upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's exactly what he's telling that crowd there in Jerusalem that day. That's exactly what he's telling the world today. God cares about you. We need to continue to pray for healing. And we need to keep preaching the gospel. We need to keep sharing the story. The story of Jesus Christ as foretold in the scriptures, as fulfilled 
in His name. We need to keep sharing that story. We don't need to wait for miracles to share that story. But when we are witnesses to miracles, we need to see that as a divine opportunity to share the Gospel. To share the Word because now we have ears and eyes that are ready and pliable to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And we need to take full advantage of that and we need to preach the Gospel. We need to share those stories. Earlier when I saw your heads nod about miracles, I'd like to know what those nods are about. We would like to know about those miracles. We would like to share those stories with one another because what God can do with that as we preach the Gospel. Now, I know some of you are kind of private, and you're like, well, you know, I don't want to draw attention to myself. I don't want to make this about me. Let me tell you, you share a miracle story, you're going to get attention. But then you get the opportunity to do exactly what Peter and John did. You get to say, well, don't look at me. I didn't do it. It's not my goodness. It's not my good works. It's not my righteousness. I didn't do that. But I know a guy. His name's Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Share your stories. God still does miraculous things through us today. Because the gospel is still being preached today. Because his mission is that more and more people would come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he's given us that mission to share that good news with the world. And he will continue to heal people and do miraculous things through us to give us more and more opportunity to share that good news. I pray he continues to do that through each and every one of you the rest of your lives. In Jesus' name, amen.